Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. So I'm pumped. We're starting a new series today in the book of Titus. And so the first few verses today will kind of be a launching pad for us to explore the major themes of Titus and the background and um, Paul, the author, where he's at, Titus, what he's doing, um, the, the island of Crete, who he's writing to. That's where Titus was when he wrote this letter. And we're going to see kind of where we're going over the next few months. So look with me at Titus. Titus verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. This is what it says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is God's word. And I'm so excited to be able to share and begin exploring the deep riches and wells of this book, Titus. So it's, it's a very small book. It's only, um, four cha- it's only a couple chapters It's like a concentrated, I call it the pocket guide to the gospel. It's kind of got so much jam-packed in there. This talks about church leadership. It talks about grace. It talks about salvation. It talks about Jesus as Savior and holiness and upright living and grace that's motivating all of it and motivating the Christian life. And I was kind of thinking about this book as it relates to jelly beans, Now, you ever get those weird packs of jelly beans that have all those kind of strange flavors and you pick one and you hope it's not the booger flavored one, right? You hope it's the the chocolate one or the popcorn one. But if you've ever had the popcorn one especially, that's got like such a powerful flavor that just hits your taste buds, doesn't it? It's, It's really small, but it's really powerful. And that is the book of Titus. It's the popcorn flavored or the chocolate flavored, depending on which one you like. It's whichever one you like, but it's the the good flavored jelly bean that's really helping us see the gospel in a really concentrated way. So we do have a series overview that I write for every sermon series that we've done as a church and we will continue to do as a church. I write a series overview that explains where we're going, kind of the narrative, how this fits into Clarksville, why we're doing this sermon series. I did it for present, the one that we just wrapped up on the Holy Spirit, and we're going to do one for Titus as well. So it's online. So if you want to go to our website, you can go to where it says messages. You can click on Titus, the sermon graphic, and that'll actually give you a little box. You can download this PDF, and that gives you all the information about Titus, where we're going, what the sermons are, why we're talking about this, what it mean, what it meant in Crete, what it means for the church, and what it means for us 
today. So this first sermon, I always do this when I begin a new sermon series. The first sermon is a little bit more teachy, okay? And we're going to go through how, kind of how the book is structured, and it's a little bit more of an orientation so that as we go through, we're kind of more oriented to the themes and what's going on so we can really dive into the meat of the book without having to go through all this background information. So this is where we're going today. We're going to talk about how Paul is the author of Titus, We're going to see Titus was the course corrector of the early church. We're going to see Crete was the island of chaos and debauchery. We're going to see the major themes in Titus. And finally, two worlds collide. So first, Paul, the author of Titus. So let's begin Titus 1.1a. Very first words say, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul is putting his name on this book that he is the author of it. So Paul wrote a couple of different letters while he was under house arrest in Rome. And he was released from prison and he's been continuing to travel, but he's kind of far away from the people that he has invested in. And he's preparing for an eventual re-imprisonment and to be martyred. He really truly is moving in this direction. He knows his life is going to be ending and he figures it's going to be ending soon. So the last three letters that Paul ever wrote were 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy in that order. And so this is his final record to Titus on how to establish church leadership and how to install elders and the qualifications for pastors moving forward before he dies. So these three letters, uh, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy are called the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles, letters that were meant to be read and meant meant to be um, spoken out in a church as well. Because they're really written, they're called the pastoral letters because they're written to individuals. They weren't written to churches, but it was meant to be also read out loud within the context of a church. So Titus got this letter, it was really meant for him, but it was also meant to be an encouragement as well and a guide. So we see at the end of his life, Paul is still sending. He's still forming. In his last days, he's working tirelessly to establish the church until his final breath. You see, he had started, he had been a part of the start of this beautiful movement, this beautiful movement of churches. I mean, almost every church in the entire first century can trace their their lineage back to something that Paul did or said, right? Or somebody that he sent or a sermon that he preached or people that he led to faith. And so we see that he is working hard to establish the firm foundations of the church right up until he dies. So that's where Paul is. He's at the very end of his life. This is the second to last letter that he writes, and he's writing to his friend Titus. Now, I've called Titus the course corrector of the early church. Look with me at verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So what we get from antiquity and extra biblical writings is that Titus more than likely studied philosophy and poetry. He was more of a quiet, confident man. And Paul had led him to faith, and he traveled and trained under Paul for many years, maybe even decades. And so we see that he went with Paul to Jerusalem, and Titus was crucial to the arguments about Jewish customs and Jesus's salvation. So there was this question in the early church about whether non-Jewish people could be saved, and 
without following Jewish customs. So whether non-Jewish people can be saved in general, once they figured that out, then they said, well, do non-Jewish people need to follow Jewish customs because Jesus was Jewish and Christianity is flowing out of the, the fulfillment of the anticipation in the Jewish faith. And so there's been a, a question about this and Titus was at the center of a controversy about this, which actually has deep significance to what's going on in Crete and the writing of this letter of Titus. So look with me um, as Paul recounts his story or his connection with Titus and this question of whether non-Jewish people, of which Titus was not Jewish, whether non-Jewish people need to follow Jewish customs. Look with me at Galatians 2, starting in verse 3. It says, But even Titus, who was with me, this is Paul recounting, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have had in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Titus was at the center of this controversy and he saw firsthand how we cannot add any expectations to becoming a Christian apart from hearing, believing, and obeying the message of Jesus. So he's seeing firsthand, he saw Paul fighting about Titus actually. Titus was right there and says, no, Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. No, we don't need to add anything. We need to contend for the faith because Paul says the truth of the gospel was on the line. So then we see that Titus, after following Paul, kind of being at the center of this controversy, the next thing we see about Titus is that he is sent to Corinth to set the church right on at least two different occasions. Now, Corinth was like an an upper-class Crete. So whereas Crete would have been a little bit lower-class, retired soldiers and mercenaries and pirates, um, dealing with a lot of debauchery, dealing with a lot of crime and a lot of of different struggles that we'll get into, Um, Corinth was dealing with the same thing, but it just had more of an upper-middle-class veneer to it. So look with me at how Paul is recounting Titus' involvement at the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we still rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Forever boasts I made about him to you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. Now you see, Paul had sent Titus to Corinth, a city of vast perversion, with the intention of delivering a letter from him, and then he was supposed to stay put and put the church in order. And so the Corinthian church was dealing with heresy and immorality and greed-induced selfishness, many of the very same things that Crete is dealing with in the, in, in, that Paul is writing to help Titus with where Titus is currently at as Paul delivers this letter to him. Titus really does, in Corinth, appear to be very successful. He's combating the heresy. He's correcting the immorality of the, uh, with gospel truth. He's winning over the hearts of the Corinthians, so much so that, that, that he is loved by them and they love him. And every time he thinks about them, he celebrates them and he's encouraged by them. And even the people in Corinth set up a tithing and a giving structure to help the poor and to help the underserved and to establish that local church. 
So what we see by these examples is that Titus is like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. He's got a particular set of skills. He's a troubleshooter. He's a peacemaker. He's an administrator and a developer. So he's, he's taking something that's already there. He's putting administration on top of it. He's developing it. He's troubleshooting problems and he's bringing peace where there is conflict. And so we see after Corinth, Titus joins Paul. He rejoins Paul on his missionary journeys. And then for years, we don't hear about it. So what we do kind of think is that Paul has been sending him on some of these smaller kind of missions. He's sending him on a couple of months here, a couple of months there. Um, and and he's, he's kind of doing these shorter missionary works to help establish and to really support church plants. He's further developing his skills. He's assisting Paul in leading these various churches, trying to kind of bring an organization and a structure to these things. Now, when Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome, Titus was actually right there and then traveled with Paul to Crete. And that's where he was left to set the place in order. And that's then Paul goes around, he's doing more missionary stuff. He sees that he's probably going to be re-imprisoned again. He's probably going to end toward in martyrdom. And so he actually left Titus in Crete. And so he's sending one last letter to his friend Titus, to his son in the faith, right before he is more than likely going to die. So that's where we see Titus is the course corrector of the early church. Then we come to Crete, this island of chaos and debauchery. Now, let me put up a, an image for you right here. I want you to see where this image is. I want you to see where Crete is. It's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So on the far right, we see Israel, right? That's on the, the right coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, we see in the top left, we see um, Italy. And you can see Crete is like dead center in the middle of everything that's going on. It was really very strategic strategic, and it was a major trade route, but it also had on that island Mount Ida. Now, it was a 8,000 foot high mountain that pretty much people in the, the Greco-Roman culture believed that Zeus, the, the famous god of mythology, he was born on Mount Ida. That's what they believe. And actually, Crete has a fascinating history that I'd love to get into, but I don't have the time in the sermon. But Crete actually predates Egypt. And so we see that there's like pottery in Egypt that was made in Crete. It's pretty bonkers how old it is. And what we see at the time of Titus, and actually for about 800 to 1,000 years, it was filled with mercenary soldiers, pirates, and thieves for over 1,000 years. So there's warring factions. This, this island could have literally probably taken over the world, especially with where it was strategically located in the Mediterranean Sea. But the problem was is that you get a bunch of pirates and you get a bunch of mercenaries together, they don't really like to work together. Okay, so there's all these warring little factions on the island. It really prevented it from being worse, to be quite honest, because if the people would have aligned together and partnered together on this island, they could have been a major military force in the, that, that cultural context. But it was absolute chaos on the island. 600 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, there was a famous poem, uh, a poet that said, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, 
idol bellies, Epimenides. So we see in the first century, so 600 years after he wrote that poem, it's still going on because if you were called a cretizo, which Cretan, it literally meant that you were like being a liar and a thief. It was a derogatory term. So Titus is going there and, and his being stationed there is kind of being like stationed in Siberia in the winter. All right, it's not a fun place to be. It's really messed up and there's a lot of things going on. However, this is why it was so strategic. You see, there's certain things that happen in the New Testament and because we just don't understand the context, like, because we're not there, we don't see that it actually makes a lot of sense, like organizationally, administratively, that Paul would immediately go to Crete after being let out of Rome, right? Because Crete was in chaos, the church there we're going to find is in chaos. It's the seat of worship of the main god of the time, Zeus, right? And so he's leaving Titus there to set that right because it's also at the center of the trade routes. So you got people coming up from Egypt, from Israel, from Rome, all hidden Crete because that's where you would spend the winter so that your ships don't that your ships don't fall apart in all the winter storms, right? So you'd winter in Crete if you were a trader, which means that you were trading stuff and you would winter there and you would have safety and that is where they could introduce the gospel to you, right? So if you have strong churches in Crete, you could literally influence the known world. And so that's why Paul is putting a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of focus to, to, to try to see the gospel and God as Savior in a culture that is predominated by Zeus. This idea of it, and, and the people are embodying the character traits of the God that they worship. So there's adultery, deceit, treachery, dishonesty, greed, and corruption. And so Paul is thinking, imagine if this place could be transformed. It would be a major powerhouse for sending missionaries across the known world. But Crete is a really messed up place, and it's because it is, it is dominated by Zeus and the worship of Zeus in the culture, which kind of leads us to the major themes in the book of Titus. And so I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 3 of Titus 1, and then we're going to walk through, there's actually going to be four themes in the book of Titus. So for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to God with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised, before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So, in Crete, third, first there was absolute amount of corruption and greed amongst the church leaders in Crete. They were actually using their position to lie and cheat other church members for financial profit. And so we actually find that this is happening across families as well, but this was also happening within the church. So Paul is instructing Titus on how to remove those leaders and then set up godly leaders who will be models of godliness and holiness. Sometimes you got to cough. So I hope, I hope the audio turned off and I hope the audio also turned back on or I'm going to be preaching the sermon again. 
So first, this idea of corruption and greed, and really it it boils down to lies versus truth. And so that's why Paul is emphasizing, I'm writing to you for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, and he also refers to as a God who never lies. You see, remember, Crete is filled with liars and untrustworthy people and deceitful people. And this really introduces a major theme of lies versus truth in the book. Why? Because Zeus was born at Mount Ida. And Zeus, in all the literature, lies and deceives and cheats. And the people that worshipped him were the same way. There were pirates and there were mercenaries and there was actually such corruption and greed amongst church leaders that they were actually using their position and trying to sell like sermons. They were trying to say, hey, I'll preach a sermon against this guy if you'll pay me some money. It was really crazy. They were preaching what others wanted to hear so that they could get financial profit. But this introduces the setup or the contrast with Jesus and the true God who never lies. And Paul is writing for them to have a knowledge of the truth. And really, Jesus is the truth and is the God who never lies. So in Crete, we see that there's a theme of lies versus truth in the book of Titus. Next, we see that there was rampant sexual immorality in the midst of the church. It was damaging the church's witness on Crete. And Paul gives specific instructions in chapter 2 for older men and older women and younger women men and younger women, and on servants on how to act in light of God's glorious grace, which all revolve around self-control. So almost the qualifications for elders, for younger men, older men, younger women, older women, all of those things revolved around self-control. And this leads us to kind of the second comparison and contrasting, which is debauchery versus godliness. He says, he's literally, I am writing to you for a knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness. See, again, like we said, Crete was filled with sexual immorality, and it was filled to that degree that families didn't form as quickly, and kids weren't born into normal families as much, because the men and women were so sexually deviant. There was a bunch of orphans running around the island of Crete, and their parents would just disregard them. They would just leave them because they wanted to kind of pursue their own debauchery. And again, this puts up a comparison because this is Zeus. In all the literature, Zeus was sexually promiscuous. He was an adulterer. He would appear in different forms to women in order to seduce them and draw them into his spell. And my friends, the people were the same way. And this was struggling both inside the church and within church leadership. And so what Paul is writing to Timothy to emphasize is godliness instead of debauchery, purity, holiness, uprightness, all in light of God's glorious grace. Third, we see that there were ethnically Jewish Cretans who were claiming to be Christians but they wanted people to observe all the Jewish laws, like circumcision, and they were creating dissension amongst the churches. Now, now it's very interesting. Remember, 
Titus was at the center of that controversy like years, maybe even decades prior. So Titus is the perfect guy to go in and address these ethnically Jewish Cretans who are not actually Christians and they're trying to cause division within the church saying, well, you've got to be circumcised or you've got to follow the Jewish laws in order to be a Christian. And they're probably doing it for some sort of personal gain that they could get out of that, right? And so Titus totally has had experience with this for many years. He's been at the center of multiple controversies and navigating people through those controversies. So Paul is giving Titus clear instructions on how to address these Jewish myths and the commandments of those who turn away from the truth. That's verse 14 of Titus 1. And those were to warn them twice and then remove them from the church. So he pretty much says if these people are dissenters, and they're not really Christians, but they think that they're Christians, they're claiming to be Christians, warn them twice, remove them from the church. And what this brings up, a comparison and contrasting, is law versus freedom. And that goes back to that phrase, in the hope of eternal life. You see, the, 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 there was people that was just arguing within the church about who might or might not get into heaven based on whether you got circumcised or you tithed 10% of your spice cabinet, right? And what we see with Zeus specifically, how this connects with Zeus, is Zeus requires works to satisfy his needs and to meet the criteria for heaven. That's what in Greek mythology, you had to satisfy the gods. You had to appease the gods, meet their sometimes shifting criteria in order to be able to get to heaven. And the people were the same way. They adopted a pagan perspective of the true God. They made God like them. They said, hey, you've got to follow my rules to be okay, so I'm going to say that God feels that way about me as well. Titus 1, 10 to 11 says these words. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So we see that people in church leadership were struggling to understand good theology about salvation. And what we see is that when we come to Jesus, when we come to the true God, Jesus requires nothing from us to satisfy him. He doesn't need us at all. He wants us. And he meets the criteria for heaven himself, and then he gives that met criteria to us, right? So whereas there is law under Zeus and law under these Jewish Cretans, there is freedom under Christ. Fourth, and finally, there was a major confusion about the nature and the character of God. You can kind of see where this is building, right? There was being confused about the character of Zeus. This created heresies throughout Christian churches. And this underlying misunderstanding about the character of God is what actually led to the other three things. It's what led to the law versus freedom. It's what led to the, the debauchery versus godliness. It's what led to the lies versus the truth. All of it was a misunderstanding about who God was and who we are. It was a misconnection of identity. And so it led to corruption, it led to sexual morality, all this controversy. And Paul states clearly and consistently about how God is our faithful and true Savior. He actually references God as Savior six times in only 42 verses. He keeps saying it over and over and over again and implying it in many more verses. How, and, and it really sets a comparison of Zeus the user versus God the Savior. And you see, what Zeus does is he uses you. 
He uses you to get worship from you, and he uses women to get sexual satisfaction. And what we found was the people were the same way. They used one another so much that the family units in Crete were rare. They lied and cheated and stole even from their own family members. And you couldn't even trust the people in your own family, your own flesh and blood. And even in the church, uh, it's, it, Paul was saying, don't, fil- don't pilfer, but showing all good faith. And he says, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's Titus 2, 10 to 11. So what Paul is saying is, I want you to be clothed in a right doctrine about God. And that changes us not to pilfer, not to seek to use others. Because when we look to Jesus, Jesus is not like Zeus who wants to use you. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to give you his perfect record. He wants to give you his rightness. He wants to do all the work for you. This is actually what makes Christianity one of the hardest things to follow because you don't have a list of rules. You don't have a God that wants to use you for his own satisfaction. You have a savior who wants to save you for no other reason than that. He loves you and he finds you lovable and he wants to love you into being more lovable. Jesus saves you we see that these are some major themes in the book of Titus. And finally, we see, really, this is where the two worlds collide. The world of Crete and the world of Jesus, the world of Zeus and the the true God. We see the world of Clarksville that we live in and the world of God's kingdom. You see, my friends, we, you and I, we're Crete. We either go towards lies or we go towards rules, right? Right? We can either believe that our version of the truth and our perspective on God is right, and that's just lying to ourself. Or we can believe that if I just follow the rules and I look the part, then I'll be okay. I'll please God and please myself in the process. You see, we all tend towards lies or rules. My friends, we always have a tendency, a, a natural bent towards debauchery. We can believe that if we live our lives however we want to, with no consequences and no repercussions, that we can do that as long as I get mine in the end. The winning, if you're winning, if you're successful at life, then it's proof of your rightness. And part of me doing what I want and living at life and winning at life can involve hurting or harming others as long as they're the bad guys and I'm the good guy. As long as I can shape in my own narrative that they're the bad people and I'm the good people, then I can just kind of do whatever I want. There's this idea of debauchery that still is within us and within the world around us and even in Clarksville. And finally, we are created in the sense that we turn towards false gods. You see, I can lay my life down to work, success, children, personal desires. I can lay it down to a besetting addiction or sin. And my friends, these gods demand much of us, don't they? And that it works when you work it, but when it fails, there's no grace for you. That's why people turn to seeing their job as their God and worshiping it as their God, as the seat, coming into the seat of God in their life. Because for a time it will work. But the moment that you fail, the moment you don't serve it completely, the moment that you mess up and we'll all mess up, then that idol, that false God gives you no grace when you fail. But if I meet the demands of my God, my children meet the demands of my job, meet the demands of my own personal desires. If I can look the part, be successful, I'll feel okay, worthwhile, and valuable. My friends, you and I, we are Crete. 
And what we see from the pages of Titus and what we see from the narrative of the scripture and what we see from the life of Jesus and the work of Jesus on our behalf is that we need a savior. We need a savior that gives us truth. The truth is that I cannot change. I cannot be whole in and of myself, but I need a faithful, I need a true God who doesn't demand of me, but rather gives to me. I need grace to see God as he truly is, far more holy and far more loving and compassionate than I ever could have imagined. That is the truth that we so desperately need. My friends, we need a savior who leads us into holiness. I need the same grace that reimagines my view of God, that helps me reshape my view of God into reality. I need that same grace to change me, to train me how to live and to do good works out of a good heart. Because I need a heart transplant and I need to be filled with somebody else's holiness, not my own. And then finally, we need a savior that brings us salvation. I need a savior who will give to me instead of take from me. I cannot earn or fight for my rights, but rather when I come to God in my weakness, he saves me by his own mercy and his own grace. And my friends, when we see Jesus as our savior, this leads us to mission. See, once I'm saved, I am now given a new way of living that's dynamically integrated into the community that I live in. My weakness, my sin turns into God's strength and his grace. And by his powerful grace, I can live integrated into my community, yet I can live differently. I can point people to this grace in my life, by my words, and by my actions. And, and as we wrap up the conclusion of this two worlds colliding, Titus addresses four questions that I think can change our story. The first is, who do you follow? He gives us a gospel leadership strategy. That's what Paul does. God instructs his people in this book to not follow fancy plans or those who are the loudest, the boldest, the brashest, but rather to follow those with godly character. That's the talk about elders. The second question that it answers that can change our story is, how do you engage with the culture around you? That's a gospel missionary strategy. God desires that his people don't assimilate into culture or withdraw from the culture but rather participate in the culture around us and transform it with a new way of living. It talks about how to live well. Third, how can you live different? That's talking about gospel power. God makes clear that this new way of living, dynamically integrated into the community around us, will only be possible through his grace, not our works. He actually talks and teaches us how to change. And finally, the fourth question addresses is what happens when you live different? That's gospel witness. That God changes the world through his people. That your new way of living produces real, practical, tangible, real world change to the people around you. And that talks about how your obedience changes others. As we enter into this book, my friends, I want to encourage you today. If you look back over the course of your life and and I want to ask you a question. Have you believed that Jesus is truly your Savior? Have you seen him not like Zeus who wants to use you, but like the true God who wants to give you all good things? My friends, our false gods demand so much of us. And they work when we work it, but there's no grace when we fail. And the message of Titus and the message of the gospel is that Jesus is our true Savior. He is giving to us and not 
taking from us. He's leading us into a life secured for us already. He's leading us into holiness and godliness. And, and the question that I have for you is, have you received his work for you? And you might be asking me, Josh, how do I do that? Well, it's very simple. You just need two things. You need repentance and faith. And if you look over the course of your life and that haven't, you haven't had a stake in the ground moment where you have put your stake in the ground and said, yes, I make Jesus Lord over my life. He is my savior and I will follow after him for my life. If you haven't done that, then that, that means you're not a Christian yet. But what you need to become a Christian, what you need to see Jesus as your savior and to receive his work on your behalf is just two things. That's repentance and faith. Repentance is literally walking in one direction and then turning around and walking in the other direction. That's all that repentance is. It's just a 180. And it's trying to stop following the rules or believing a lie about yourself. Stop trying to do things your own way and putting a seat of other gods in your life, but literally just saying, I can't do that anymore. And then the third thing, the second thing that you need is faith. And there's just three things, three elements of faith. That's hear, believe, and obey. First, you have to hear this message and believe that it's true for you, that you actually need it. And then the third thing that is required that is so hard for many people is you need to obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. And when you say, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my King, I humbly submit to you as my Savior, then immediately he enters into your life. He indwells you with his Holy Spirit. And he gives you this grace that saves you. And the same grace that saves you is the grace that's going to train you. It's, it's going to train you to, to not do certain things and then to do certain things, right? That's what it's going to look like. That's what it looks like to become a follower of Jesus. Now, if you look over the course of your life and you have become a follower of Jesus, as many of you have as a part of our church, my friends, my question for you is, have you slipped into apathy? The world wants us to believe that we have to do things for God to love us. And there's a constant lie that our hearts want us to believe that I've just got to work harder for God to be pleased with me because he's probably not happy with me right now. But my friends, that's just like the ancient gods of old. It's just like the ancient God of Crete, Zeus. The true God loves you freely and he changes you by his grace as you submit and surrender to him. So your key, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to submit and surrender to the true God. Do you have a besetting sin? Are you struggling to submit and surrender? My friends, his grace is what has saved you and his grace is what sustains you and his grace is what will train you. And you can pray right now, today, and rededicate yourself, not to just doing more good things, but rededicating yourself to God's grace today. My friends, Titus highlights there's a different story that we have than the world around us, that the world around us wants us to believe. And the story that we have is called the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's the good news of Jesus. And we find in this subversive story of the gospel, a new world, a world in which we have a savior who will give to us instead of take from us. That we cannot earn or fight to justify our existence, but rather when we come to the true saving God in our weakness, he saves us by his own mercy and his own grace. And once we're saved, we're given a new way of living in this current world that is dynamically integrated into the culture around us. Our weakness turns into God's strength. And by his powerful grace, we can live within the world yet differently, pointing people to this new story of grace by our life, our words, and our actions. And this shows the beauty of the message of the true God. My friends, followers of Jesus find themselves living in the tension between the story of the world and the story of Jesus. 
And in a sense, it is like two worlds, two completely different ways of living. And we see that with the coming of Jesus, the old narrative is getting swallowed up and into an entirely new story. Two worlds collide. Thank you so much for your time and have a good day. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.